Jean Bicorny joined the Israel Philharmonic at the young age of 22. And in part two of our conversation, he talks about a number of his experiences with that orchestra, both musical and non-musical, and why he regards the Israel Philharmonic as one of his greatest teachers. Gene then talks about his playing experiences with the Utah Symphony, the St. Louis Symphony, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and the Chicago Symphony, and why he will use different instruments for different composers. This episode is brought to you by Dorico, the music notation and composition software from Steinberg. Dorico is a family of products for iPad, Mac OS, and Windows, and you can get started for free with Dorico for iPad in the App Store or Dorico SE for Mac OS and Windows. Visit www.dorico.com to learn more. Hey everyone, this is Eddie, Tony's producer. Hey, before we get back to the conversation, Tony wanted me to share some of my favorite features in Dorico. But since you're here to listen to Tony and Gene, I'll keep it just to one aspect of the software that I really appreciate, and that's the AI-driven layout. It's really, seriously, really good. I can spend a lot more time on the music itself instead of fighting against the machine. The AI even gets into automatic standard notation and historical layout practices, which means really beautiful, consistent, and easy to read scores and parts, giving me a lot more time to focus on the actual music making. And if you want to do something different from the norm, you can easily do that too. Okay, enough for me. Let's get back to Tony and Gene. There's really some amazing ideas and stories in this one. Right after USC, um, how soon after USC did you get your first job, which was in Israel? It was right at the very end. So I was still going to school. I was in my junior year. Then this uh, audition happened for the Israel Philharmonic. And uh, Tommy Johnson and Roger Bobo arranged for me to take an audition with Zubin Mehta, who was the music director of the Los Angeles Philharmonic at the time. And so I drove from USC to downtown LA, one of the shortest audition distances anybody could do, you know. And I went down there and played on stage at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. And a few weeks later, I got a call from Roger saying that Zubin Mehta wanted me to be the tuba player in the Israel Philharmonic. And I was supposed to call Zubin Mehta at this number in Italy and talk to him for a second <laughs> and confirm it. Yeah, that was that was it. So this just happened in May of 1975. And you were like, what, maybe 23, 24? Uh, 22. I, ju- I, ju- I just turned 22, yeah. So what's it like for a 22-year-old kid from Southern California all of a sudden being in a country like Israel, which is, I think, probably really, I've never been there, but probably a really different culture, being in your first uh, major job. I'm wondering, like, were you nervous the first rehearsal with the orchestra? Do you remember the first rehearsal? Uh, yeah, the first rehearsal was actually in uh, Salzburg because I met the Israel Philharmonic in Europe. They were on a European tour and we're doing right of spring. So there's two tuba parts and the tuba player in the Israel Philharmonic at the time was Matt Garbett. Oh, Matt, up- really? Yeah, yeah. So he okay. had, he was finishing up, and uh, and then of course he, sometime later, soon thereafter, joined the San Diego Symphony. But I would, but we played um, we played Ride of Spring together on this tour, about a five or six week tour of Europe. So I, I in fact, I have a recording of the very first rehearsal, a little cassette recording, and 
beginning the second part of the Rite of Spring, you know, it's very, and then there's this big octave muted two Ds, two, two concert Ds, one a really low one, which is my second tuba part, and, and Matt played the one just below the staff. And I came in about a second and a half before everybody else, because in, in European style of conducting, you know, I'm used to, you know, the ictus, you know, changes, and that's where the sound happens. Bop, bop, right? I'm the looking at the screen yeah. to get on the yeah. downbeat, bop. But, but in Europe, it's bop, <laughs> you know, because everything is is just behind, you know, that's, that's how they conduct there. And so I finally got used to that. I have it on a cassette tape somewhere in the, if it is, if it hasn't disintegrated somewhere, uh, that, that first rehearsal. So, well, you've played with, with, uh, an, a number of orchestras, Israel, Utah, St. Louis, Los Angeles, even for a short time, I think a, a year. And then of course, Chicago, for quite a long time. So I've got a question about those orchestras. I mean, they're, they're all different orchestras. I assume each orchestra has its own personality. Um, do you feel like over time you have had to change your playing for each individual orchestra, the way you approach a particular piece of music, or do you play pretty much the same no matter what orchestra? Uh, I would say that one of the great teachers that I had was the Israel Philharmonic because with all the other teachers that I had, um, it was playing the instrument and playing the instrument well and in tune and all that stuff. But when I got to the Israel Philharmonic, they were ones that really played with a lot of music, a, a lot of heart, a lot of rubato, a lot of feeling. And that was where I first got the, the whole other spectrum of of how to really play with Espressivo and uh, take a little bit more time, take a little more, just kind of take charge in spite of what the conductor was doing. I would, you know, when we would do American in Paris or something, I would go ahead and really just take my time to, ex to, to, be, to be expressive. That came from all the players that I heard in the Israel Philharmonic, especially the string players and, who played with so much heart and so many of the woodwind players that played with a lot of heart, but also uh, doing some chamber music in Israel, uh, working with the pianist from the Israel uh, piano trio, Yonatan Zak, who basically raked me over the coals when I was trying to play the Hinemuth tuba sonata. We were rehearsing before a performance and, and I was trying to make it sound just like the Roger Bobo recording, you know, just exactly like Roger. And he, and Israelis are, they hit you square between the eyes. You know, they, okay. they'll, they'll tell you exactly the way they, they're thinking. And he, would, he just stopped in the middle of rehearsal. What are you doing? You're not, you're playing like somebody else. You're not playing like yourself. What are you doing? You're trying to play like a recording. You know, it's, well, I'm trying to play it like Roger Bobo. You know, he's the greatest tuba player on the, no, 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 no. You got to. That's, this is, you got to take it. This is your piece now. You have to take it as your piece. You interpret this. This is your idea. These are your, these are supposed to be your ideas. Forget all that. You have to, this is your piece. I mean, he was, he was very brutal. <laughs> and 
he wouldn't go on until I just started to run things my own way. And that uh, was one of the best lessons I had. So there I started to be a little bit more expressive within the, within the boundaries of the, of the, of the Israel Philharmonic and started to take just a little bit more expressivo during, for instance, the solo in the Mahler first symphony, you know, I would, I would play really, really soft and, and really try to stretch things out. And Meta was really game for something like that. He, he, he was allowing me to do it as well. Now, interestingly enough, I only spent three years in the Israel Philharmonic, and then I went to Utah. And Utah was a little bit more kind of back to basics and playing things on time. And, you know, it was uh, a lot more pedantic, you know, a lot more academic. But I still remembered all that stuff that was going on in, in Israel and still... So when I had a chance, you know, like four majors in, in America and in Paris, uh, I'd go ahead and I'd hijack the solo. And I would go just as, and I would do as much stuff. And, you know, it was up to the conductor to follow me, you know. I mean, it was, that was some of the stuff I was doing. And I was doing a lot more recital playing and doing that a lot more. And and so I was having a chance to be a little more espressivo in that. And, and that that's always been kind of a, a mantra for me. And, uh, you know, listening to different singers and that, uh, Pavarotti is was a big influence in how to be expressive. You can't play the second move of the Von Williams tuba concerto like you're mailing a letter. You know, you really have to, you really have to be expressive with it. If you get it closer to Puccini, it'll be a lot better. That's, that's the way I've kind of found it. And that's kind of, in a way, how I've done a lot of teaching in, in that respect, so. You know, you talked about Israel and being emotional, and, and you think of the importance of music or how music can be important. And um, could you, if you don't mind, talk about the concert you had in Melbourne when you were on tour with the Israel Philharmonic and what happened and what it was like? Yeah. Well, inevitably, it seems very pattern-like that whenever the Israel Philharmonic would go on tour, there would be some type of a terrorist event that would go on in the Middle East. And a lot of times it was directed towards the Israelis. And um, at this concert, uh, it was in March of 1978, when the Israel Philharmonic was on tour. And of course, there was something that happened. And what happened was there was a, a rubber dinghy and there were some terrorists, uh, Arab terrorists that came on board between uh, Tel Aviv and Haifa, they came on, on the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. They came on board and they got to the Tel Aviv-Haifa highway and they were shooting things up and then they, they found a school bus. They, the, the school bus was going by and they shot, uh, they shot up the school bus and killed a bunch of kids. And there was this, uh, one of the cars that was passing by, uh, they, they, well, well, well they, they were shooting at anything that moved basically. And one of the cars that was going by was this car that was, uh, was being driven by a fellow who was the uh, flute player in the uh, Jerusalem Radio Symphony. And in the car was his family, his wife and two sons. And one of the sons was a tuba student of mine. And the other son uh, who was sleeping in the back, in the back of the, of the station wagon there, uh, was his was his brother. Well, as it turns out, 
when this car passed by, uh, that car was shot up. It severely damaged the father's right arm, I think, uh, flute player, couldn't play anymore. And it, it missed uh, the, the older brother who was my tuba student, but it killed the younger brother who was sleeping in the back and bullet went right, right through his brain. It was a very traumatic thing that happened. Uh, in fact, the next lesson, when, the, when this high school student came in for a lesson, after the lesson, we, we went out to his car and he showed me the bullet holes, which had yet had not been prepared, uh, repaired, including the one that uh, the, the, the bullet hole with it went in and killed his brother. So that was, that, was, that, that was pretty amazing. And you had to play that night, correct? Well, yeah, when we were in Melbourne, we, 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 we had to play that, that concert. And we ended the concert. I can't remember what the major piece was that we did, Bartok Concerto for Orchestra, or probably a Mahler Symphony. I'm not sure because it was, well, I, don't, I just don't remember. But then we ended the, we ended the concert with Hatikva, which is the Israel National Anthem. And this was in the Melbourne Town Hall. It was before, I, I guess, they built a concert hall. And, of course, there wasn't a dry eye in the house because of what had happened. And uh, it was a pretty dramatic thing that happened. The fact that we ended the concert with the Israel National Anthem and, not, and didn't start the concert with the Israel National Anthem made a huge impact. And so I think that's the major gist of, of what happened, Tony. And there were, of course, protests. I remember being in Sydney. It was a we had one day in Sydney. It was a rainy day. Most of the people stayed, I think, inside the hotel. We had a concert to play that night. But I remember looking outside and seeing the, all these protests, you know, because there's uh, pro-Israeli and pro, uh, pro-Arab protests that were going on, you know, down on the street level. It's always... Always unrest, it seems. Yeah. You know. Did you did you ever um, fear for your life in Israel? Yeah. Uh, in Israel, the only thing that be, that came close was uh, we had a brass quintet gig. It was on a Friday night, and uh, we had this brass quintet would go out on Friday nights to different kibbutzim kibbutzes around around the country, and we. We play a concert on Friday night, and uh, and then drive on back. And this one kibbutz was way up in the northern part of Israel, near the Lebanese border called Menara. And um, we played the concert. And from our location at Menara, we could see that night that there was some there was some type of a border skirmish, and there were these tracer bullets that were going across the valley. And we thought, well. You know, if we try to leave Menara, we're going to be right in the middle of this. Maybe we should spend the night. And so we spent the night in Menara. They put together, you know, some beds for us. And we didn't leave till the next morning because we saw these tracer bullets. I don't know that I felt threatened or anything because I, I tell you, the Israel Philharmonic is one of the, especially when you're with the orchestra, it's one of the most heavily armed orchestras anywhere. I mean, nobody knows yeah. it. And some of these people, oh, my God, there was this one guy, Professor Goldberger. He was about five feet tall, and he was fully armed, and he was a crazy guy. So when he came down to the front desk to complain about, 
you know, the windows weren't clean or it wasn't cold enough in the room or, you know, he wanted to have fresh water or he needed a new bar of soap. Those guys behind the desk better, <laughs> better respond because, uh -huh. yeah, I mean, the, the whole bassoon section that were those guys, these guys were tank commanders. That was their regular gig when the when the when, when the army happened, you know. When, wow. Uh, yeah, I remember one concert we played Tony and I think Walter Beller was a conductor. He was a Austrian conductor, and we played something, whatever it was. And the first after the first movement, and about a quarter of the audience got up and walked out. And apparently, the word had gotten through. I, I guess they were having a call up for all for, for army guys in a particular division to to show up to their army posts and everybody thought you know and, and the conductor thought it was he says conductor probably thought i didn't conduct that badly you yeah, know right. where, you know 25% of the audience gets up and walks out but there was a, a call up for the for the army and it's a, it's an army that you know they're very effective they they work they you know it's not it's not just it's not just uh you know the national guard where you know you kind of show up you know with your with your trombone and 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 your mute and play something on a saturday morning and you've done your army duty i mean this is a this is an army that really really works so not like the national guard band did you did you do that did you I, do that? no i didn't um but i actually inter interviewed um jock ellis i don't know if you know jock or not i don't uh, that's not that's not out yet we played an american youth symphony jock was a crazy guy and still is i mean really a great guy but he played with frank zappa and and all these people but he oh, yeah, was in the yeah. national guard band and there's so many incredible stories about the national guard band with jock and jim sawyer and all these incredibly funny guys and and there was nothing that the the, the conductor could do because these guys were so good you know so oh yeah yeah anyway yeah i heard a yeah i heard a story where they were they were marching and they did a counter march at one point you know so they kind of turned into one another and changed directions 180 degrees and Wes Jacobs was playing tuba in the group and uh, of course Wes Jacobs ended up in the San Francisco ballet and then he ended up in the in the Detroit Symphony for many years and now he runs encore music and and that but as he was passing as he you know he was in the back rank so as he was passing by. And this, and the, they were doing a counter march. He was simulating a Doppler effect by doing the umpaws and taking them down a half step <laughs> as he was passing. <laughs> and I guess everybody just kind of piled in. You know, they just, you just completely fell apart. This was a big band review, and of course, you know, the the generals and all the all the stuff shirts on the side were completely aghast that the band had completely fallen apart <laughs> in this, in this counter march. And all the guys wore wigs because um, you couldn't have long hair. And so they would wear, wear wigs all the time. So, I mean, just, just in, incredible things. And let me ask you about orchestras. You, you had talked about um, Leonard Slatkin saying that Jacobs led the Chicago symphony brass more than Hershey, or he was a real leader. But if you think of the top and the bottom, the trumpet, and and tuba the first trumpet in israel when you were there was that who was playing first trumpet it was ed cord for two years uh for, for one year it was okay. ed cord for one year and then glenn fishtall came in <laughs> okay, so you probably uh, have some great stories about glenn then i would oh think. my gosh the stuff that 
I remember the very first rehearsal, Meta was trying to put Glenn in his place, you know, very first rehearsal, because it, it was just before a Hollywood Bowl concert. The orchestra was on tour, and we were rehearsing at Local 47, uh, downtown L.A., and we were playing, uh, I think it was Copeland Third Symphony, and of course, in the middle of that is um, Fanfare for the Common Man. You know, it's it's in kind of a small iteration of it. It was something. Just there wasn't. It was just a very small section, and so of course, Glenn's playing. You know, and nobody knows this guy. You know, he's just you know, big guy with a big beard and stuff, and and you know, he had come from all types of different places. You know, Hong Kong and the Midwest and stuff. And you know, he comes in. And and so Mates is really kind of really looking at him, you know, with with the eyes and you know the 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 stare and on all this. And Glenn's playing just fine, you know. He's just he's, he's not bothered by anything because Glenn's the most relaxed brass player that ever walked the planet, you know. And Mates finally makes a suggestion, you know, tell tells Glenn what to do in a certain certain way, a certain place in the music. And Glenn just kind of has a puzzled look on his face, and he says to Mate, he says, "Well, you never played it that way in Kansas City." <laughs> and, <it's> just, <laughs> and, and people from the string section looking around and saying, "What the hell is this? Who is this guy?" You know. But uh, yeah, we never played it that way in Kansas City. You played with Ed and Ed Cord and Glenn Fischel in Israel, and then I would think Ed Cord again in Utah. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. In fact, Ed was the one who he was very, very instrumental in getting me that gig because um, I was leaving Israel because I had to make a decision whether to if I re up for another year, I would have to decide that I would become a new immigrant. I'd have to get off my tourist status. If I became a new immigrant, then I'd be up for army duty and and that type of thing. And I I wasn't up for that. Not, yeah. not, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted more things to do in my career before I did that. So Ed knew I was ready and willing to come on over. And that's, it coincided with the unfortunate uh, passing away of Charlie Eckenrode. Right. You know, and they needed somebody fast. And I, I was out of work for three weeks. And then Ed told Marisa Bravanel, I came right over. And uh, and started right up without an audition. That was how things were done back then. So. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, for sure. So you had Ed Court and Glenn Fischel, and then Ed Court, and then St. Louis. You had Sue Slaughter in Los Angeles. You had Tom Stevens and I would think Bob Duvall. And then in Chicago, you had Adolf Herseth, and um, then I guess I guess Chris Martin and or um, who was there between? Um, uh, uh craig yeah who, morris. craig morris yeah and, and then right. chris martin and then uh esteban batayan is that how you pronounce his last name yes yes um yeah. so yeah. if you think of, of the top and the bottom sort of leading the brass section do you feel like you had to change the way you approach things in terms of the different personalities of of the first trumpet player or did you basically just sort of play more based on the the personality of the conductor, let's say. Yeah, um, just one minor correction, and that was I never had a chance to work with Bob Duvall. Oh, too uh, bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never got a chance to work with him. Uh, 
Don Green was about as close. I think Don Green was right. the assistant or associate or I don't know if they he may have been co-principal because that was how they did things in LA. They had yeah. co-principals and that, but uh, I would say, well, Tom Stevens was it. I mean, yeah. he was, he, he was number one, you yeah. know? So, yeah. so um, I don't know that I needed to change very much with, with any of them. I mean, they certainly had different leadership styles the way they, the way they ran the section. I, I would get an occasional suggestion from Ed Cord, but not very much. Glenn was completely off, uh, hands off. He he didn't make any suggestions in the section. He just led by example, you know. In a in a lot of ways, he just he just went ahead and put it down. You know, he just just laid it laid it right down. Susan actually, Susan Slaughter was maybe the best balance of everything. She would lead by example, but she was also really good at making suggestions to the to, to the section but Susan was definitely uh, very well rounded as far as let's say the best principal trumpet player you know make yeah. uh, g- good suggestions good example and 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 really make things happen and then uh, and then Hersa of course um, led by example and inordinate growling <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, he didn't say much to the section, but you know, you you either followed him or you were wrong, and uh-huh. you didn't. It, it didn't take long to know because he was a very loud player. I mean, you just he was he was loud. There was no pyramidal sense of balance where the bottom was the strongest, and you would, you know, as as you get to the top of the pyramid, you don't have to play as loud when you're playing all the highest notes. It didn't look anything like a George Zell type of orchestral balance or if you were a band person, W. Francis Macbeth, where you had this pyramid. I mean, Herseth was very strong and you, you knew if you were wrong, because if you weren't with Herseth, you were wrong. <laughs> would, would he make, when you first joined the orchestra, would he make suggestions to you no. as to how to play? No. No, I would go to him and he said, just do what you're doing, kid. Uh-huh. Just doing what you're doing, you know. Uh-huh. You know, he was. There was that was the way he was, kind of, kind of gruff. But that was the type of leadership that that he went. I remember asking, I, I, I remember asking Jim Gilbertson once, who was sitting. He was a trombone player. who was sitting right next to her. Said, "I said, Hugh, you asked him about about phrasing in this one phrase we were doing, and and Jim looked at me. I I could see the blood draining out of his face because you just didn't even." ask a question of Herseth. You just did what he did, you know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and, and, uh, and he never asked a question, you know, so, but uh, then down the section, well, Craig Morris wasn't there for long. Chris was one of these guys who Chris Martin played by example, great example, didn't necessarily make very many suggestions. And uh, I know he and he and John Hagstrom, uh, they spent quite a bit of time working together John really uh, appreciated having to hear what uh, w- what Chris was doing in order to match. It just took a little bit longer than others, maybe, but 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 John was always really intent on trying to make a team effort happen. And then Chris left, and Esteban is um, he plays great by example, and he doesn't. Uh, 
he and John work really well together. I've never met him, but but just seeing his Facebook posts and everything, um, he just seems like a like a very happy person who's very happy to be where he is. Yeah, yeah. We just finished a brass quintet tour of right. uh, Japan, and uh, it was a total joy to work with with Esteban and John together. I mean, this this quintet is has probably the most disparate bunch of personalities. You know, we're, we're way, so way different from one another. But the between the uh, challenges of the music, which were considerable, the programming was, was very challenging. And then uh, to have these various, it, everyone seemed to be trying as best as they could. And it was a real, real good chance to play together. I mean, I had a, I had a great time playing with Mulcahy because Mulcahy is an ensemble player and he's got great musical ideas and it was so nice to be able to, to work with him. And Dave Griffin, our horn player, uh, he has a tremendous low register and his high register is quite acceptable. I mean, he really does. He does nail that. And then John and Esteban, I mean, Esteban's so talented in everything he does. And John just uh, really works his buns off and just keeps it right up to a very high level, probably with a lot more effort than other people would put in. Uh, John is a, John is very, very conscientious. I, I think very well of him. So, you know, it's interesting because speaking of quintets and, and just sort of the way people view the Chicago symphony brass, I remember many years ago, Alan Dean and I played, it was a radio concert, a live radio concert in Chicago with you and Mike Mulcahy and Gail Williams. And Alan, of course, is the consummate quintet player. And I had played a lot of quintets. And that was an unbelievably scary concert for me because I've never had to play that soft. And I'm thinking, here I am playing with these guys who play the Chicago Symphony they're known for this massive sound and, and you guys could play so soft. I mean, it was amazing. So, um, I mean, there's a versatility that I think people don't give the CSO brass credit for of, of dynamic versatility, not just being able to play loud, but to be able to play really soft and with subtlety and, and with expression. Thank you for, thank you for mentioning that because that's a, it is a hallmark of the, of the, of, of the brass section. I mean, our, our trombone section, when they choose to, can play very, very soft. I mean, really, just, just barely above the fabric line. I mean, it can be like a loud refrigerator motor, and that's about it. You know, it just, it just <laughs> doesn't... hopefully a nicer sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and somewhat, and we change cycles. We're not always at 60 cycles, you know. <laughs> okay, okay. 50 in your case. I think it's 50 in your case, right? Okay, okay. Europe, I have uh, no idea. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we change from a flat B natural to other notes. Okay. So, uh, yeah, uh, the, the brass section plays off, but the, but the overall reputation is one of, you know, just playing really, really loud. I mean, and, you know, it's exciting. I mean, you listen to that Reiner recording of, uh, of Domestic Symphony, uh, Symphony Domestica. Yeah. I mean, you have to start walking around the room. You just can't listen to that and be sitting in a chair. I mean, you know, that's just, you just have to do something, you know. Yeah, it's great. And, uh, yeah, but there's, uh, but the orchestra, the, the brass section does and can play soft. And, uh, 
very sensitive to sound, very sensitive to quality. I remember times when uh, in one of the WC, it was a thing with Nuage or, or La Mer or something that the first, the trumpet had muted trumpet and English horn. Oh, that's La Mer. And somehow, yeah, is it La Mer? And, La Mer, yeah. And Herseth got this incredible synthesis of sound with the English horn that to this day, I'll, I don't I don't know that I'll ever hear again. I mean, well, we haven't played it yet with, with Esteban. But there's a, a sensitivity to, uh, to tone color and that soft playing. Well, that little soft fanfare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, uh, and that's just remarkable. Of course, they're using, you know, whisper mutes and all yeah. that. But still, just a, a real sensitivity to playing on the soft side. And then, and then these other things where the, where the power is just so incredible. I mean, as some, as one of my string colleagues put, he says, you know, Schulte, when he gives you a thumbs up, it doesn't mean he, he likes it. He says it, it means that you're only playing one forte and he wants, and he wants to hear two. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, well, it, when you're playing in the orchestra, um, let's say Chicago symphony, how much differently do you play if you're playing, let's say Brahms second compared to Sibelius second compared to Mahler's second or Prokofiev fifth or right of spring. I'm, are you, are you really trying to change your sound and your approach to that different kind of music? Or would that depend more on the conductor? I think it would depend a lot on the conductor. At least the conductor would have maybe a final say over some of these things. But I know, for instance, when we were saying play Brahms second, that Brahms was extremely conservative and he really didn't know exactly what he was writing for, this newfangled instrument called a tuba. He really didn't know what he was doing. It was more like uh, a fourth trombone, a trombone mm -hmm. in F, something like that. And so he, that's what he was kind of writing for, even though he heard about this new patent of a, an instrument called a tuba. And so I'll get a suggestion and maybe it comes in from uh, the trombone, specifically Mulcahy, but you know, what, what, uh, to play a smaller tuba. And I got that once from uh, Dachniani, who was conducting that piece at Ravinia. And so I went ahead and got out an F tuba to make it just a little bit more massive, so it wasn't so massive on the bottom. I've never really had a conductor insist on a particular instrument. One of the things that I started to appreciate more and more uh, is the idea of the double B-flat tuba, which is used most exclusively in Germany and Austria and in Russia. In other words, they don't use the double C tuba that we most associate with big American orchestral playing and what they use in Denmark and Norway and, and, and a lot of places in, the, in Italy. But uh, there is a particular place for that double B-flat tuba, that big, massive tuba that by itself doesn't really sound that interesting because it's just a, a fundamentally based... It's just a, you know... And its beauty doesn't really become clear until you put it with a trombone section. Then you realize, oh, here's this massive bottom that really helps out the trombones a lot, uh, as opposed to, say, a double C tuba, which has some more highs in the sound, 
but doesn't provide as much of a bottom. And so I've been experimenting more and more with double B flat tuba. Uh, and in fact, we'll go ahead and play double B flat tuba in combination with the C2. I'll have a couple instruments on stage. Earlier this season, we played uh, Tchaikovsky Second Symphony, and I used double B flat tuba on that. Francesca de Rimini, I used double B flat tuba on that. Played uh, Pictures at an Exhibition, and mostly played double B flat on that, except for some solo things. Boom, 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 boom. That, that little solo that's in the that's in the last movement, and uh, I'll, I'll use a double C two of that because it's a little bit more. It's more of a solo. It needs a little bit more highs in the sound, and not so kind of kind of massive. I kind of I kind of refer to the double B flat tube as kind of a freight locomotive. Okay. You know, it's dirty, dirty, ragged, greasy, worn, has 7,000 horsepower, is ugly, smelly, and but can really haul a lot of weight. <laughs> gets the job you done. You know, gets a job done and can pull 17,000 tons up a 2.5% grade and not, you know, not, and not, not even slow down. Whereas the double C tube is kind of a passenger locomotive. It's sleek. It's fast. It it runs really uh, runs really really well and is a purdy boy, you know. But it doesn't put down as much massive bottom as a double B flat. So, I think where I'm trying to lead my place at this point, <laughs> finally, in my thirty years here uh, or so, thirty three, thirty four years. Uh, I think I'm trying to get a kind of a combination of using double B flat tuba and some of the really, really massive things, and then being ready to change to the double C, the famous uh, York tuba that, that Arnold Jacobs brought in to, to the orchestra here back in the day uh, when he joined the orchestra in 1944 and use that in a, in a lot of things, but not, but not all the time. So it's it's kind of a combination, and who knows where it's going to go in the future. But I but I do uh, I do appreciate the double B flat too. It was a it was a kind of a traumatic thing when that realization occurred, but it occurred about the time of the Berlin Philharmonic auditions, and that that's a whole other story. But it was after an experience of playing with a double B flat tuba and playing it for Barenboim that I realized, you know. There's some. There's a real use for a double B flat tuba in places, and I should reacquaint myself with that with that possibility. Although Gene is known mainly as a great orchestral tuba player, he is equally adept as a chamber musician and soloist, and we talk about that aspect of his playing in the bonus room. If you enjoyed this interview, please feel free to leave a review. <laughs>